We'll go ahead and dismiss our kids to Kids Church this morning. So we continue to walk through the Gospel of John. <clears throat> We're going to be in the book of John chapter 16, verses 1 through 15 this morning. I had a church member last week, maybe it was a week, two weeks ago, sent me a, a, a text message of a memory that had popped up on his news feed from a year ago. Uh, and I think we were in like John chapter 8, something like that. So, uh, so it's, it's, it's real encouraging. Uh, so uh, just, just you know, go ahead and brace yourself. We're going to be in the book of John for a few more, uh, a few more weeks. Uh, so John chapter 16 this morning, as we look at Jesus' promise that when he leaves, he will send us the Spirit of God. Verse 16, chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you, that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills they will do to think that he is offering service to God. And these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I've spoken to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I do not say to you at the these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you ask me where are you going? But because I've said these things to you sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away for I do, for if I do not go away the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. The spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. All things that the father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and he will disclose it to you. Let's pray. Father, as we examine this passage of scripture, Lord, may we be encouraged. May we be encouraged that Persecution and hardship and affliction is not unique to us. But Lord, so as we share in the sufferings of Christ, we will also share in His glory. Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Holy Spirit. May we continue to grow in our walk and our knowledge of the Holy Spirit within us. We thank you for Christ, and it's in his wonderful name we pray. Amen. Well, it's my prayer today that as you leave, that you will see the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Baptists don't, lock, don't like to talk about the Holy Spirit. We're scared of the Holy Spirit. We don't know what's going to happen. 
when the Holy Spirit shows up. But as we examine God's Word, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is every bit God. And for us to, for us as, as followers of Christ, for us as pastors and teachers to, to gloss over <coughs> or to ignore the passages that, that speak directly to the Spirit of God and the working of the Spirit of God is to, is to deny the power of Christ. Charles Stanley said this, he said, Spirit-anointed preaching compromises no truth, it avoids no subject, and it fears no reaction. And so it is my desire that as we walk through this text that we'll rightly divide God's Word. Now, it's important whenever we come to a passage of Scripture that we under, understand the context of Scripture. And oftentimes, we will examine the context of the text itself and often forget about the context of the audience. Now, we've looked at very, uh, uh, you've heard me mention over and over again the context of what's going on within the, con within the text of Scripture that Jesus is, is hours away from his betrayal, his arrest, his, his trial, and his crucifixion, and that he is warning his disciples. He spends chapter 14, 15, and 16 preparing his disciples for his departure. But I don't want us to lose sight of the audience. John's gospel was written toward the end of the first century, probably around 90 AD, give or take. And so what is going on in the world in Palestine, in the ancient world at that time. At that time, the temple has been destroyed. The Roman, the Roman army has come in and to quell a, a rebellion, they have destroyed the temple in 70 AD. And so this is 20 years on the other side of that. The Jews have kicked out, have, have ostracized the followers of Christ, and they are no longer a part of Judaism, but they, they have begun to identify as a separate sect within Judaism initially, but then the Jews said, no, 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 you're not part of us. We don't want all of the persecution, all of the, the venom that is being hurled at you to come upon us. And so, so not only have the Christians been, been persecuted and exiled by, by the world, but now they have been exiled and and excommunicated from Judaism. And they can't even participate in, in the sacrificial system. They can't participate in the worship that they grew up with. The Jews were taught that eternal life was found through obedience to the law. And these Christians are no longer allowed to go to the synagogue. They're no longer allowed to participate in these these rituals and these rites that, that they were taught would bring them unto eternal life. Now, I say all this to say that we must understand what the Christians are experiencing in their lives and the context of which they're hearing this is exactly what Jesus is speaking about. As Jesus communicates to his disciples and he tells them in verses one through four, he says, these things I've spoken to you, that they will make you outcasts from the synagogue and hours coming and they will kill you and they will think that they're offering service to God. And these things they'll do because they have not known the father or me. He says, they're going to kick you out of the synagogue. They're going in just the previous passages. We saw that they're going to hate you because they hated me first. 
not only did removal of the synagogue have an impact on the Jews religiously, spiritually, but for the Jews in a Roman province, their entire culture, their entire community, their entire social group was found within their synagogue. These are Jews living in a Roman province. They come to the synagogue for for protection, for, for community. They come to the synagogue to meet with people and talk with people and worship with people who think like them, who talk like them, who've been raised like them with similar values. In a pagan world, they are the only, mono, they are the only monotheists that are there. And now they can't even participate in that. They've been ostracized from their community, from their social group. They're pariahs. Up until this point in the life of Christ, Jesus was able to absorb much of the antagonism and the belligerent behavior that was hurled at Christ and his disciples. Remember when Jesus stood in John chapter 8 and he called the Pharisees sons of the devil? He said, you are of your father, the devil. And they said, oh, no, 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 we're, we're from Abraham's seed. And he said, you don't even know Abraham. Abraham rejoiced to see my day and, and you're, you, you are not even believing and you're not even in accepting what I'm teaching you. And they said, you're not yet 40 years old and you've seen Abraham. And he said, before Abraham was born, I am. And they picked up stones to stone whom? Jesus. They weren't after the disciples. They were after Jesus. Whenever the disciples were with Jesus, he was able to absorb much of the antagonism and much of the, the criticism that was hurled at the, at the disciples and at their, their community, their growing, their growing group of believers. His arrest would be the last time Jesus would be able to deflect the antagonism away from his disciples. Do you remember, and we're, we're going to get to this in just a few short weeks, how Jesus the account of Jesus' arrest. A legion of Roman soldiers comes to arrest Jesus and he's there with 12 uneducated fishermen, peasants. They said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He steps forward past his disciples, making sure that, that any, any antagonism, any anything that was, that was going to befall them, that he would absorb the brunt. He was protecting them. He steps forward. He says, I am. And they fall to their ground. They fall to their, to their faces. And then, and then they stand back up and they say, we're looking for Jesus. And, and he says, I, I'm he. And what do the disciples do? They run and hide. Jesus all throughout their ministry, has been able to deflect and absorb much of the antagonism toward the disciples. But there's coming something that's going to happen. Jesus is leaving. And so all the venom, all the antagonism, all of the, of the belligerent behavior is now going to be absorbed and is going to be felt in a very real way <clears throat> by the disciples. Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, Andrew, Simon, 
Thomas, they are going to be the recipients of the antagonism and the hatred and the venom that was pointed at Jesus. Now they're going to be the ones that receive it. And Jesus is warning them. And then he makes this statement that if if you read this, you're like, how in the world is this good? You get to verse You get verse 4 and he says, these things I've spoken to you that whenever their hour has come, I'm sorry, verse 7, but I tell you the truth that it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, I want us to understand that this is not a metaphysical problem. Jesus is not saying that Look, as long as I'm here on earth, the Spirit of God can't be here on earth because somehow if, if, if the two of us are in the same region, that, that the universe is going to explode. This isn't back to the future. This isn't where if, 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 if future Marty sees, sees past Marty that, that there's some time-space continuum that's going to that's be destroyed. and all. It is not a medical-physical problem that Jesus and the Holy Spirit can't coexist. Jesus and the Holy Spirit have coexisted from all eternity. And they will coexist for eternity future. It's not a metaphysical problem that Jesus is saying. He's not saying that as long as I'm here physically, the Spirit of God cannot be here. What Jesus is saying is an eschatological statement. He is speaking about the timeline of redemption. What he is saying is as long as I am here on earth, as long as I have not yet been crucified, been buried, and risen from, the ga- risen from the grave, as long as that has not yet taken place, the kingdom of God cannot be ushered in. There will no longer, um, until that happens, there will not be the saving reign of God's kingdom on this earth. There is a necessity that the Son of God must be exalted upon a cross. And so that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, it is to your advantage that I go. Because until I go, until I hang on the cross and buried in a borrowed tomb and raised from the dead, until that happens, the Spirit of God will not come and the, the kingdom of God will not be ushered in. Look at the text in the Old Testament. This is what Jesus is referencing. Ezekiel chapter 36. As we get to Ezekiel chapter 36, when he's talking about the new covenant. Listen to what he says. Verses 24 through 27. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and what? I will put a new spirit within you. That spirit, that new spirit that he will put within you is the spirit of God. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statute. And you will be careful to observe all of my ordinances. Jesus is saying, until I go, this new covenant cannot begin. He tells his disciples at the Last Supper, he said, this is the cup, the cup of the new covenant, my blood which is shed for you. Until his blood is shed, the new covenant cannot be ushered in. 
not a metaphysical statement Jesus is making. It's an eschatological statement. In the book of Joel, chapter 2, Joel's one of those real small books in the back. And as you flip through it, you'll pass it about 16 times before you actually get to it. As you get to the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 28 through 32, listen to what he says. He says, and it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit upon all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will display wonders in the sky and on earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it will come about that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be delivered. That should sound familiar. Paul says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It must take place. And that's what Jesus is saying. He is saying that it is to your advantage. Because until this happens, the timeline of redemption is at a standstill. Until Jesus dies, is buried, and risen from the dead, and the Spirit of God comes, the kingdom of God will not be ushered in. And then we get this statement that Jesus says. I challenge you to look at what takes place after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Just think for just a moment. Jesus is, he's crucified, he's buried, he's risen from the dead. Then sometime later, Acts chapter 2 records the day of Pentecost. And it reads like this. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting and there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is referencing. And he began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was given them. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, a multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one were hearing in their own language. They were amazed and they were marveled, saying, are not all these men Galileans? And now each one of them we hear in our own language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, districts of Libya, Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. At that moment, the gospel went from Greek and Aramaic immediately to a plethora of different people groups. That list encapsulates all of Asia Minor. And so you had, in one moment, the gospel went to all of Asia Minor because each one of these people who trusted Jesus took the 
transformation of Christ back to their own home. And they told their, their, their mothers and their fathers and their brothers and their sisters and their cousins and their co-workers. And they told them about the redemption of Christ. They told them about the freedom that was offered in Christ. They told them about how the law was insufficient to save us from sin and that he died and was buried and rose again to free us from the bondage of the grave. That happened in one moment. And then seeing what was happening, Rome tried to destroy this move of God. And through emperor after emperor after emperor and Domitian and Diocletian and Trajan and every other evil emperor out there tried to destroy the work of Christ, it flourished. This book is 437 pages of stories of how the Spirit of God moved upon men. Their testimony loved not their life even unto death. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And they loved not their life even unto death. And the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. It is necessary. It is to your advantage that I go. Jesus said it is to your advantage because look what's going to happen. As long as Jesus is there, the timeline of redemption is at a standstill. As long as Jesus is there, the kingdom of God cannot be ushered in. But when he leaves, the spirit of God comes. And when the spirit of God comes, it moves amongst his people. And when the spirit of God moves amongst his people, lives are changed. The timeline of eternity is changed. Our entire world is centered on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Do you realize that? Our entire calendar, this is the year 2023 AD, Latin for Anno Domini. Anno Domini means in the year of our Lord. That moment when Jesus was killed, buried, and resurrected, that moment ushered in the year of the Lord, the day of the, the day of the Lord, the kingdom of God became ushered in. So Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go. And then he makes the statement in John chapter 16, when the Holy Spirit comes. And I want to point out for just a very, very brief moment that the Holy Spirit, we see back in John chapter 15, referenced by a a pronoun that is not the Spirit of God is referenced to as a pronoun that has a masculine gender. Typically in Greek, the word spirit has a neuter gender because it is referencing to something that is neither male nor female. However, John gives the Spirit of God a male gender communicating to his readers that this is not some spirit that I'm referencing, that this is not some some force or some some i some other entity but that this is a being this is a person this is god very god and then we'll see over and over again here in john chapter 16 how he will reference the spirit of god look at what he says in verse 13 and he the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all things for he will not speak of his own initiative but whatever he hears he will speak and he will disclose to you. 
Does that sound like something that is impersonal or something that is, that is the spirit of force? No, that is a very personal entity. The spirit of God, God the Holy Spirit is God. He is 100% God. He was eternal with the Godhead before time began and he will be eternal with the Godhead until time, until the end of time. I can't even wrap my brain around that. But the Spirit of God is God. In the very same sense that Jesus is God, the Spirit of God is God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, yet the Lord your God exists in three in very distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. All God, yet one. If you figure that out, let me know. We'll, we'll, we'll write a book. We'll make millions. He makes the statement in John chapter 16. He said, when the Spirit of God comes, when He comes, verse 9, when He comes, verse 8, He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. He will convict the world when the person of Christ comes. When, I'm sorry, when the person of the Spirit comes, He will convict the world. He will convince the world of their personal accountability. When the Holy Spirit comes into our life, when the Holy Spirit begins to work in your life, nobody has to convince you that you're wrong. When the Holy Spirit begins to work in your life, when the Holy Spirit begins to bring conviction, you don't need somebody to, to convince you that, that you have sin in your life because the Holy Spirit works that. Have you ever been cleaning in your house? And most men in here are saying, cleaning, what's that? But you've been cleaning in your house and you, you, you dust the furniture and, and you look at it and you admire your handiwork and you think that what you've done is good and then you open the blinds or you pull back the shades and what happens the sunlight rushes in and you see all of the dust in the air and you see the the table or the the dresser or whatever that you have just dusted that you've just cleaned and you see all that you've missed. You see the, the fingerprints. You see the smudges. You see that which you could not see with the naked eye. When the light of the sun shines through, the impurities and the smudges and the dust is revealed. When the Spirit of God comes, the Spirit of God shines light in the darkness. In John chapter 3, verse 19, it says, The darkness hates the light. John chapter 3, verse 19 it says, and this is judgment, that the light has come into the world and meant and does not come into the world. For their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his deeds be exposed. When the Spirit of God comes, it will testify of who? Of Jesus. When Jesus shines his light into our life, even the good things that we do are revealed as wickedness. That's what he says next. He says, not only will he convict of sin, but he will convict of righteousness. The book of Isaiah chapter 64, it says this. He says, Isaiah makes the statement, he says, our righteousness is as filthy rags. 
I want to unpack this for just a few moments. For all of us who is for all of us have become one who is unclean. Our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. If you go back and you begin to examine the Hebrew, the word that is used there, the words that are used there is our righteousness is as a minstrel rag. That's what he says. It's crude. It's gross. It's disgusting. But that's what the language says. It says our righteousness, the good things that we do, the things that, 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 that we hold up and we say, look at what I've done. Look at my righteousness. Compared to Christ, it is like minstrel rags. Filthy. Disgusting. When the Spirit of God comes, He will convict of sin, convict of righteousness. And then, go back and think about it. All of the Pharisees, what did they do? They said, we've kept the law. We've kept the Sabbath. And what did Jesus do? He healed on the Sabbath. He says, you haven't kept the law. The law says that we're to care for those who can't care for themselves. And you're so worried about keeping the law, you're so worried about your righteousness that you miss it. And so look at what we've done, Jesus. And they sought to entrap Jesus. They sought to, to expose him as a liar, to expose him as somebody who was wicked. And when they did, he stood up in righteousness. And their pseudo-righteous deeds, their, their attempt to keep the law was exposed for what they are. And when we come to God in our righteousness, under our strength, under our ability to try and be good enough, the light of Christ shines on our life. And he says, this, this is your good deeds? Filthy rags. And then he says, the Spirit of God, when he comes, he will convict of sin. He will convict of righteousness. And he will convict of judgment. The world judges. But the world judges with a false judgment. And the world judges based upon their set of righteousness based upon what God sees based upon external circumstances. But the scripture tells us in Samuel that God sees not as man sees, but God sees the heart. The world looks at the, right, at the rich young ruler who has achieved success on every level, has kept the law since he was a youth and looks at him and says, this man can be judged righteous. Jesus looks at him and says, sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and follow me. Then, then you will know eternal life. He hung his head and walked away because Jesus is able to see the heart. The Spirit of God is able to judge the heart. And then Jesus looks at Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, the woman caught in the very act of adultery, the woman at the well who had had five husbands and the man she was living with wasn't her husband. And he, she is the one who he first reveals himself as the Messiah. Why? Because Jesus judges, the Spirit of God judges not based upon what the world sees, but based upon the heart. When the Spirit of God comes, he will convict of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. This convicting work of the Holy Spirit Church is a gracious work. I want us to understand this. 
the convicting work, when the Spirit of God comes and He reveals to us our sin, reveals to us how, how imperfect our righteousness is and how, how, how finite and how limited and how, how insufficient our righteousness is. And when He reveals to us that the judgment that we've been looking at is all wrong, when the Spirit of God comes and reveals to us who we are in light of Christ, that is a gracious work. That is a gracious work because when the Spirit of God reveals that to us, there is no other response but to throw yourself at the mercy of the court. To throw yourself before the cross and cry, God have mercy upon me. God have mercy upon me. I am a sinner deserving of death, deserving of wrath. And Jesus looks at the thief on the cross. He looks at you. He looks at me. And he says, because of who I am, because of the righteous requirement of the law that I fulfilled, because of who I am, today you'll be with me in paradise. When Zacchaeus comes down out of the tree, falls on his face before Jesus, he says, I'm having supper at your house today. The woman caught in adultery looks up at Jesus with nowhere to go. No words of justification. Here I am. Jesus said, get up. Go. Be clothed in my righteousness. Sin no more. The grace of God comes on the other side of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And while the Holy Spirit works judgment, the promise of God is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, there is therefore now no convicts you of sin, of righteousness. When the Spirit of God comes and He convicts you of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, and you fall before God and you say, God have mercy upon me, all those who come to me, Jesus said, all those who come to me, I will in no wise cast them out. And when we come to God, we are promised His grace and His mercy. And when we receive His grace and His mercy, we receive the Spirit of God into our life and there is therefore now no condemnation for all of those who are in Christ Jesus. I want to remind us, church, all of the work of the Holy Spirit. This says this in John chapter 15 and in John chapter 16. All of the work of the Holy Spirit points to Jesus. Every bit of it. You want to know if somebody is speaking or some church or some denomination is speaking in the power of the Holy Spirit? Does it point you to Jesus? Does it exalt Jesus? Does it lift up Jesus? If it doesn't, it's not of God. The Holy Spirit will never, ever, ever exalt a church. It will never exalt a denomination. It will never exalt a preacher. It will never exalt a ministry. The Spirit of God, Scripture tells us blatantly and clearly that He, when the Spirit of God comes, He will testify of me, of Jesus. It's not about church. It's not about denomination. It's not about ministry. It's not about preacher. It's about Jesus. When the Spirit of God comes, He will testify of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus said, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to the Father but through me. We read in Acts chapter 4, There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved, but the name of Jesus. Salvation is Jesus plus nothing. There is therefore now no condemnation because of Jesus. Jesus plus nothing. Pray with God, as we see the promise of your Holy Spirit, as we see the work of God in our lives, we see the convicting power of the Spirit of God revealing to us that we are in desperate need of salvation. What is your response? If the Spirit of God has revealed to you that you are in need of salvation, you have one response to come. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Stop trying to be good enough because your righteousness will never be good enough. Come rest in Jesus' righteousness. Come rest in what He has done. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come. As we sing this hymn of invitation, come. Come unto Jesus and find rest. Maybe this morning, you're tired. You're tired of trying to be good enough. Maybe you know Christ, yet you've been trying to to fix your life, to fix your problems under your own power. Let me encourage you this morning to be still, to stop striving and know that He is God. The finished work of the cross Maybe this morning God is speaking to your heart, calling you to become a part of this local ministry here at Redeemer. Maybe God is speaking to your heart, calling you to be obedient by following in baptism. Whatever the Spirit of God may be speaking to your heart, may today be the day of obedience. God, we ask that you would give us clear direction and discernment.